I want to take a minute and uh, pray with you as a church. But before I do that, I'd like to ask you to, to give your input. If you were to identify a, a healthy church, what would you say would be a good one-word description? Just call it out. Discipled. Okay. What's that? Growing. Vibrant. Praying. Worship. Fruit. Loving. Biblical. Would a healthy church be seeing people come to salvation in Christ? Would a healthy church be seeing people getting baptized? Absolutely. Those are the things we need to be praying about for our church as it continues to grow, as it continues to be discipled, as we continue to strive to be loving, that we not get off the mark. About a week and a half ago, I sent a letter out to our entire congregation. There's over 600 people now on the New Hope mailing list. And of every single individual, I asked for the same thing that you would join together with the leadership and pray that God would show us specifically what he intends to do at New Hope because he's doing something amazing and we get to be a part of it. And this growth that we're experiencing is represented also in biblical growth, discipleship growth, people growing to be more like Christ as we grow in numbers. So that's what we want to pray together about. What is God up to? God, what do you intend to do through us? I'm going to ask you to take a minute and pray with me as we pray together about that, asking God to give us specific direction and understanding. Would you do that with me? Father, we're your people, and we've set our time aside this morning to try and understand you better and to worship you. Most of us have come in here from an extremely busy week and we're just barely catching our breath. And Sunday morning preparations are probably no different for many of us, Father. We rush to get ready for church even. But we come in here at this moment in time saying we declare that we set it aside not only to have a moment of quiet, but a time to gain insight and understanding into your nature and your character. To such a degree, Father, that we're chasing after you, trying to understand what you're doing among your people here. You have called us out. You have said that you would build your church, the ecclesia, on a firm foundation, on a rock. And that rock is that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So Jesus, we declare that we desire to build this church, New Hope, around your desires. So specifically, we do not want to get ahead of you. But we want to understand what you're up to, Father. So that we can walk step in step with you and not deviate to the right or to the left. God, I pray specifically for your blessing to be poured out upon this church in ways that we have not yet even known. We believe that these last three years have been amazing, but I, I have a suspicion, Father, it's nothing compared to what you want to do. And so, Father, we ask through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would infuse this church, that we would be recognized as those who are set apart for Christ's purposes, that we would walk boldly in this community, 
that we would be identified as those who belong to Jesus Christ. God, we willingly give over this time of worship right now because we declare that you are worthy of our worship. You are worthy of our praise and adoration. You are worthy of our giving. Whether it's in our service or it's in our money, Father, teaching classes, however it's given to you, Father, we ask that you would use it for your glory and your honor for the expansion of the kingdom in Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray and ask these things. Amen. So in the first service, I brought this up here during prayer time so I wouldn't forget, and I forgot, and then I brought it up during this service so I wouldn't forget, but I forgot. In your pew racks in front of you are these New Hope welcome cards. If you've never filled one out, I'd love for you to do that today. But on the back, you'll notice that it says, prayer request or note to the pastor. If you had a specific prayer request, something you'd like for us as a church to pray about with the leadership or among the prayer team, you go ahead and write that down and slide that in the offering box later today when you leave the auditorium. There's also offering boxes downstairs, but go ahead and slide your prayer request and we'd love to pray for you. Uh, Apparently, my son Derek took it seriously because he wrote on this one, money for the Derek Kring fund. (laughs) All right. Um, As you're praying this week, would you uh, remember to pray for John and Joanne Williams? They had a car accident this week and totaled their car out. And uh, they got some bruises, so they couldn't be with us today. Um, They'll they'll recover, but they're going to be bruised for a couple weeks. So this week, I met with multiple college students in for a specific reason, I had a deliberate question to ask. So through texting, through one-on-one conversations, and through group conversations, I asked this same question over and over again. What is the big fail in the church today? What would you give the church an F for? Over and over again, I got the exact same response in very large numbers consistently from the college students I spoke with, they gave me one overwhelming answer. I'm going to tell you what that is in just a minute. First, to set this up today, I want you to see with me the transcripts of a conversation that took place between Christopher Hitchens and Marilyn Sewell. Now, Christopher Hitchens, if you're not familiar with him, is a world-renowned atheist. I don't know how you get to be world-renowned as an atheist, but he is. Okay, so as a world-renowned atheist, Christopher Hitchens wrote a book about a year and a half ago or so, and the book is entitled, um, God is Not Great, How Religion Spoils Everything. Now, that book very quickly skyrocketed to the bestseller list. A lot of people are very interested in it. His publishers set him up with a nationwide tour. So Christopher Hitchens set out about a year or so ago on a tour from radio station to radio station, television to television station, all over the nation, eventually made his way to Seattle. In Seattle, he encountered Marilyn Sewell. Now, Dr. Sewell is a Universalist Unitarian minister, and she conducted this survey between herself, or this, this interview, this debate is what it was supposed to be, between herself and Dr. Hitchens. Now, what I want you to see is the word-for-word transcript that took the question that took place in the very beginning of the conversation. You'll understand how this whole interview process started out. So first, what you're going to see on the screen is Dr. Sewell's comments by transcript form of what she asked Christopher Hitchens. 
The religion you cite in your book is generally the fundamentalist faith of various kinds. I am a liberal Christian, and I don't take the stories from the Scripture literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement, that Jesus died for our sins, for example. Do you make a dis- any distinction between fundamentalist faith and liberal religion? This is Christopher Hitchens' response. Notice he's an atheist. I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah and that he rose again from the dead and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. Wow. Okay? Now, Marilyn Sewell, being a liberal Christian, very quickly was troubled by that response. Okay, so in the transcript, her very next comment was, okay, let me go someplace else, trying to redirect the conversation, but Christopher Hitchens would have no part of it. He wanted to come back to make his point. So what you'll see next is Christopher Hitchens' further response. Paul says very clearly that if it is not true that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then we, the Christians, are of all people the most unhappy. If none of that's true, and you seem to say it isn't, I have no quarrel with you. You're not going to come to my door trying to convince me either, nor are you trying to get a tax break from the government, nor are you trying to have it taught to my children in school. If all Christians were like you, I wouldn't have to write the book. Wow, the atheist gets it. Absent of the resurrection of Jesus, absent of the fact that he died for our sins, you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. So if the atheist understands it, chances are pretty good that the world watching around us, looking at the church, also gets it. And so when the church begins to not declare the truth, the truth of God's word, no wonder this generation gives us a big F. So what's the big fail? I asked college students, texting, one-on-one conversations, what is the big fail today? Every single one of them. Church has turned into a big show. It's all for entertainment. Getting people in the door so that they can go through the motions, but it really doesn't affect their life. So I asked college students in response to that, How could you put that in a context in which I could describe that to people? Now, I thought they were going to describe something else. Here's what they said. Most of our friends who go to church live church for about one hour on Sunday morning. But the rest of the week, they look just like the rest of the world. And I said, are you describing hypocrisy to me? They said, absolutely. Our friends say the church is hypocritical because they say they believe the truth of this word, but they don't actually act like it. And the church itself as an organization fails to declare the word because they're trying to appease people and attract them in the door. So this generation who gives us a big fail understands the Bible is not a resource for truth. It's the source of truth. It is absolutely what we're supposed to go to, not a supplementary text It's the only text. The truths that are represented in your Bible are not optional. They're mandatory. And so it's no wonder that this generation of college students, like none other, are walking out the door when they get to college and saying, if that's what it's about, see ya. I have no use for that. 
That's the big fail. Church has turned into a big show, and God forbid that new hope as it grows would ever turn into the big show. And I want you to hold me accountable about that, that we would always declare the truth first and foremost. Those living in sin, you can count on the students. Those living in sin, your friends who are not redeemed, will find that the truths of Scripture are intolerant. They will find that God does not tolerate deviation and sinful life. That is to be expected. And so they're going to be offended by this. So let me take you back to where we left off last week when I quoted to you from 2 Timothy. Paul gave a very specific charge to the church about what we're supposed to be about, what we're supposed to be doing. Look with me on the screen, 2 Timothy 4.1. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths." Do you think any thinking person would look at the interaction between Dr. Sewell and Christopher Hitchens and say to Dr. Sewell, wow, if that's what you're about, I want to be part of that church. Absolutely not. It's no wonder that students are abandoning church because they see that there's a big fail. There's an inconsistency with what we're told to do and what actually happens. What you're about to hear is not an easy message to teach. And it is not an easy message to hear. But my job is not to make things easy. It's to deliver the truth that God intended. So that's what we're going to be about. In the eyes of the unbelieving world and many, I mean many underlined, untaught believers to speak against false teaching and to speak against false doctrine is considered unloving, judgmental, divisive, and intolerant. But if it stands on the truth of the Word of God, then I say, let me be intolerant. Okay? We're going to present it as Scripture says. The words that Jesus used to describe false teachers were much stronger than any of the words you'll hear me use today. When he encountered false teachers, he called them for what they were. Hypocrites, liars, fools, brood of vipers, snakes. I've never been in a room where somebody's even used one of those words face-to-face calling somebody like that, yet Jesus did it in a setting among religious people. Jesus was not tolerant. And so in the early church as it grew, especially on this island of Crete that we're reading about in Titus, as the early church grew, it didn't take very long before false teachers crept in and began to rise up and proclaim false truth. Because wherever God speaks truth, Satan is very quick to come in and begin to plant seeds of doubt and spread lies. So I would invite you this morning to turn with me to Titus chapter 1, verse 10, where we left off last week. We're going to take on six verses. Paul sums up for Titus what it's like on the island where he's living, this island called Crete. Titus chapter 1 and verse 10, you'll also see it up on the screen so you can follow along there. Titus faced an enemy that's very similar to what we face today. 
There was all kinds of man-made traditions. There was legalism and the temptations to conform to the demands of the world constantly surrounding him. And so it's very much like the world that we're involved in today. Titus 1 and verse 10. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. Many meaning not only that there's abundant number, that there's a lot of them, but they're increasing. The Greek says literally that they're proliferating. They're growing in number. And because of all these rebellious men, Titus had a responsibility. A significant concern for this new church was to stop them because there's rebellious individuals. The word I taught you last week, the Greek word anaputaktos. This is the word for rebellion. Look at the definition for it. Unsubdued, insubordinate, disobedient, unruly. Titus, there are many anaputaktos among you, rebellious individuals. And what are they rebelling against? If you look down at verse 14, you're going to see that they're rebelling against the gospel of Jesus Christ. They turn away from the truth. They're not just rebelling against law and order. They're rebelling against the gospel of Jesus, and they're coming from within the church. He also calls them empty talkers, monologos. Look with me at the Greek definition up on the screen for this. Monologos, idle talker, vain talker, properly to lay forth empty Literally profitless, vain disclosure. No substance, void of any purpose. This last week, I was watching a talk show on television. An uh, individual, a, a male host, was talking to four men over 40. And the purpose was to talk to them about men's condition after 40. So they had a guy sitting on a stool who was a relationship expert, a guy sitting on a stool who's a clothing expert, a guy sitting on a stool who's into physical fitness, another guy sitting on the stool who's into nutrition. So he's asking questions back and forth of these four individuals on this talk show. And one of their viewers writes in a note and says, I'm in a marriage in which I'm very unhappy. I'm over 40 yet I'm staying in the marriage for the sake of my children. I'm questioning whether or not I should stay in it because I'm very unhappy. What should I do? Is there life after divorce? So the host sitting here turns to the man on the end of the stool and says, how would you respond? The the relationship specialist responds this way. I would absolutely immediately get out of that marriage. God wants you to be happy at all costs. And God doesn't want you to be a bad father, and you can't be a good father if you're unhappy in your marriage, so therefore you should get out of your marriage. He used God's name associated with that counsel to tell the man, without even knowing the man, to abandon his marriage. Do we see how God's name is used to back things up? Is that false teaching according to Scripture? Scripture says, If you make a commitment, you stick to the commitment. There are obviously biblical grounds for divorce, but that man knew nothing about the circumstances. Now, I was thinking to myself as I'm watching this, how many millions of people listen to that man make that recommendation using God's name and saying, this is what you should do? We are told that those who are new in the faith are especially vulnerable to this kind of false teaching, thinking that deviates from God's word. Here on the island of Crete, we understand that those who are new in the faith, they don't know what they don't know. They're very new, and so they're susceptible to false teaching. Peter warned that false teaching would creep in to the church. Look with me on the screen. This is the warning that he gave, 2 Peter 2. 
There will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. The greatest spiritual danger to the church is the danger that comes from within because there's deceivers. He says literally, they're empty talkers and deceivers. And here's the danger. This danger that rises up from deceivers, the danger is so great that Paul said, even if I showed up at your door and taught you something other than the gospel of Jesus Christ, or if an angel showed up, let him be anathema. Look with me up on the screen. Galatians 1.8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. And you know that typically, very often, false teachers are disguised in biblical terminology. I don't care if it's a televangelist on TV or someone on radio, or someone in a smaller community church. They're very quickly cloaking themselves using biblical terminology. Let me show you an Old Testament example of this. There's a time when the Israelites were wandering away from God, and God was trying to call them back to himself. There were false teachers who rose up. Look with me up on the screen, Jeremiah 23. Moreover, among the prophets of Samaria, I saw an offensive thing. They prophesied by Baal and led my people, Israel, astray. Also among the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing, the committing of adultery and walking in falsehood. And they strengthen the hand of evildoers so that no one has turned back from his wickedness. All of them have become to me like Sodom and their inhabitants like Gomorrah. So you understand, the pagan prophets in Samaria... Jeremiah expected them to lead people astray. He says, I see an awful thing among them. But he sees God's prophets, the ones in Jerusalem, they're literally doing a horrible thing. They're teaching people false truth. They're living in adultery. They're leading people away from God. And God says, they're like Sodom and Gomorrah to me. That's how offended he is. So we see that deceivers disguise themselves as men of God, and at all costs, according to verse 11, they're supposed to be silenced. Verse 11 says this, "...who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain." Must be silenced means have no tolerance. The word phrase that's used here means to put a muzzle on them. You know what a muzzle looks like? A muzzle on a dog, literally covering the snout of a dog so that it can't do what? So look at the picture. So it can't bite. It can't attack. In many cases, a muzzle is so tight, a dog can't make a noise. So he's literally saying, put a muzzle on them. Stop them, Titus. Why? Because they're upsetting whole families. They're ruining entire homes. In the context of the first century, in the early church, Churches met in people's homes. They didn't have beautiful buildings like this. They had facilities that were literally people's homes, their living space, and so they would meet in small groups. When they're meeting in small groups, they're more susceptible to false teachers coming in because a small group is less likely to have biblically grounded people in it. And so therefore, when the false teachers showed up speaking untruth, 
There was no one to refute them. So Paul says, put a muzzle on them. They're literally ruining entire homes. They're showing up within the church, and they're teaching things they shouldn't teach. You understand that that is why the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses go door to door to call upon people? As a cult teaching false truth, not teaching Jesus as the only way to God. They go door to door to get people in small settings because they understand that if they, under, if they confront someone in a small group setting, it's less likely someone's going to challenge them. Specifically in the Mormon church, they will say to your face in a discussion, Jesus is the Son of God. But listen very closely when they say the conversation to you, they usually will phrase it this way, yes, I believe Jesus is a Son of God. Okay, We're all sons of God. Jesus is not elevated to being God in the flesh. Jesus is devaluated to being a God-made man, never exalted. So we find false teaching even in our own neighborhoods when individuals will not say, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the way, the truth, and the life, according to what the Bible says, he is the only way to God. So we find them coming to small settings even here in our day. And what are they doing? They're teaching things they should not teach. Why? For the sake of sordid gain. Claiming to be teaching the truth, but really not teaching it, and some of them even after going after financial profit. Verse 12, one of themselves, a prophets of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. <laughs> Paul, he doesn't varnish anything. He just says it straight as it is. He's saying the characteristics of the island's inhabitants, those who live on this island, they're very much like the untrustworthiness of the false teachers. They have similar characteristics. There was a poet by the name of Epimenides who lived in the 6th century BC, and he was from the island of Crete, and he wrote philosophy. This is one of the things that he wrote, and he was regarded as one of the seven great writers of Greece. And so people of Rome and Greece would look to him for wisdom and knowledge. And this is one of the things he said, the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And Paul is quoting him. Always liars means literally they use this phrase when someone would lie, they'd say, you're lying like a Cretan because they were so well known for their ability to deceive. Evil beasts, they're living at the level of their sensual appetites right in the world of pleasure. Everything is about their pleasure. And lazy gluttons literally means to have an idle belly, one that they feed and they do nothing with. So he sums it up by saying, it's true. Instead of living for God, they're living for their appetites. They're living like wild beasts. And do you notice? These are obviously people who live within the church. Look at verse 13. For this reason, reprove them. You can't reprove someone who's not under your authority. And so these are people within the church. He's supposed to reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. For this reason, meaning everything that was just stated, forcefully confront them. Reprove them, Titus. Look at the word severely on the screen. Greek word, apatomos, to cut abruptly, preemptorily, sharply, to cut as with a knife or an axe. Now, don't think about cutting your steak when you see that word. That's not the way it was used. It was used in a surgical context. That's why it says preemptorily, to do surgery, to remove something. That's what he's telling Titus to do. Remove this. Use it like an axe. Chop it out of the way. Get it out of the context. 
What was Titus to do? Certainly not stand by. Certainly not let false teaching proliferate, but rather confront it. What are we to do as a church when we see false teaching? We're to confront it just like Jesus did. What weapon did Jesus use? Jesus used the Word of God. Every time Satan brought an accusation and brought a charge, Jesus said, Thus saith the Lord. This is what God says. In the Word it is written. Why? Specifically because that's what stands against Satan. God's Word, so that they may be sound in the faith. That's how it wraps it up. Why do this? So that they may be sound in the faith. The word is pistis. P-I-S-T-I-S. And the definition for it is very specific when it talks about your faith. But first, look with me at how we're supposed to do this. Go back to what we looked at last week when we were talking about how to install elders, how to put elders in the church and give them responsibility. In verse 9, it said that when elders do their job, they're supposed to call people along gently and exhort them. Look with me up on the screen. Titus 1.9, hold fast the faithful word. Exhort means to call alongside in sound, meaning healthy truth, doctrine, and to refute those who contradict. So Titus, muzzle them. Put a gag on their mouth. Call them alongside and gently instruct them. Show them the error of their way. Teach them sound doctrine. Give them healthy truth. Why? So that they will be sound in the faith also. What is faith? Literally, this is the word pistis. Persuasion, the conviction of truth or truthfulness of God. Especially, reliance upon Christ for salvation. The gospel truth itself, your assurance or your belief. What you believe to be true. What you know to be truth, that is your faith. What you stand on. Now here's the problem in the day and age that we live. To most, it does not matter what you believe, as long as you believe. That's what I hear constantly repeated. Leave them alone. It doesn't matter what they believe, as long as they believe something. Well, what kind of dribble is that? Absolutely, that is delusional thinking because what you believe translates to what you do. The two are symbiotic, cannot be separated. Think of Newton's third law of motion. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Look with me at some examples from the Old Testament. You see people believing and then taking action. Exodus 4.31, So the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel and that he had seen their affliction... Then they bowed low and worshipped. Belief, action. Look with me at a New Testament example, Acts 8. But when they believed, Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Belief, action. Next week, there's going to be 12 people baptized here. They've declared the name of Christ. They believe Jesus Christ. And so the action is to be baptized. You see, belief and action can't be separated. It makes all a difference in the world of what you believe. You have to stand on something. You ask me this question, and I hear it often from students. Aren't you afraid of offending people? Gag me, okay? 
I want to be tolerant and understand that God has grace and love and mercy, but not to the degree where we change what God's Word says to appease people. That's where we have to draw the line and say, absolutely not, because Jesus said the gospel is an offense to people. They are offended by the truth of what's said here. So let's move on, verse 14. So they're sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and the commandments of men who turn away from the truth. He doesn't want them to give heed to the Jewish way of thinking. Here's a very common error that was made in the first century. Um, The Hebrew language was written using a numerical system. Um, The A would represent one, the B would represent two. So in in the way of using the Hebrew alphabet, they created this mythology called numerology and believed that they could predict the future. That's part of the mythology that Paul's talking about. But he's also talking about the commandments of men. What Jesus spoke about when he said, you're heaping heavy loads upon people because of the commandments of men. One of them would be this. On the Sabbath day when the Jews were supposed to rest, they said you can only walk one mile unless, of course, you take a rest. And then you can walk one more mile. And then if you take a rest, you can walk one more mile. But no more than that, no more than three miles. So people on Sabbath day, I kid you not, would carry stools on their backs Carrying them one mile, stop, sit down in their stool, whatever the prescribed amount of time was. Okay, I guess I passed that. Get up, any Pharisees or Sadducees looking, pick up the stool, keep walking, put down the stool again. How stupid is that? You won't find that any place in the Bible. God never commanded that. God created the Sabbath for man, not man for the Sabbath. That's what Jesus said. So this legalism was introduced into their way of thinking, and they put this commandments of men upon people. And who's doing this? Look at the very last part of the verse. Those who turned away from the truth. So they knew it at one time. They understood who Jesus was, but they decided to add to it. And so they've turned away from the truth and making it complicated for people. Move on to verse 15. This is how it begins to sum up. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. And he's speaking here specifically to the legalist who tried to say that there's only certain foods that you could eat. And if you ate the wrong foods, you became unholy. And by virtue of what they were doing, they would make themselves more holy. You can't be more holy than what you are if you are found in the faith of Jesus Christ. God sees you as holy through the eyes of Jesus, through the finished work of Christ. Yes, you can become more godly, but you can't become more holy after you're saved and you confess Jesus Christ. And they're trying to add this to it. So by virtue of your faith, the pureness of your heart, your faith in Jesus Christ alone, Paul says, to the pure, you All things are pure because it comes from within inside. Inner purity always produces outer purity. It comes from deep within you. But legalism presumes that men can do things to make themselves more like God. And that is the great error and the heresy that is found in false religion. I do not care if it's Islam or if it's individuals who worship Buddha or if it's Hinduism, or if it's Protestant Christianity, or if it's Catholicism. Anything that adds something beyond faith in Christ alone is wrong and is false. 
Only think of the garden with me if you want to see the very beginning of false religion. Satan is talking with Adam and Eve. He says to Eve, if you eat this fruit, you will become as God. God knows that in the day in which you eat of the fruit, you will become as God. Every single false religion teaches that you can work your way to faith in Christ. And that is false. You cannot work your way. You can only be accepted by God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. That is it. That's an exclamation point on it. Since the fall of man, man has tried to work his way in. God says, I'm offering it as a free gift. Lighting candles, burning incense, counting beads, rubbing Buddha's tummy. None of that stuff works. It doesn't do it. Obedience to God must come from a pure heart. A heart with fruit. That's what Jesus said. You'll know them by their fruit. Look with me up on the screen. I, Hosea 6.6. 6, For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. You can't do things to earn your way. You can only be obedient to God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what he's trying to tell them. But because these individuals were maintaining you had to do some kind of ceremony, they were showing that their minds were corrupt. That's the word that he's using here. Their conscience are defiled. They're literally corrupt in their thinking. Here's the last verse. This is how it ends. They profess, verse 16, to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. They claim to know God. They use the same words that we use, homologeo, to confess God. They confess God, but they don't actually live it out. By their deeds, they deny Him. Holding to a form of godliness is what Scripture says. In other words, they look like us. They hold to a form of godliness. But inside, there is corruption. Look how it's described in 2 Timothy 3. In the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid men such as these. You get that? They look godly, but inside is all this garbage that's just been described here. They're exactly the opposite of what they claim to be. It is an arrogant claim to say we are God's people when God says what they're doing is detestable to me. It's reprehensible. The word that's actually used in the Greek is abominable, something God wants nothing to do with. And he says they're worthless for any good. Those who have gone so far, they cannot be reclaimed. As a matter of fact, the word that's used here is an Olympic term. It was used of athletes when they would show up for the early Olympian uh, contest. Individuals who would show up to compete in a race or in a competition, if they were found to be injured in some way or they could not measure up to the athletic requirements, the same word is used here. It's translated in the Greek, castaway. They were set aside and not worthy to compete in the competition. 
So he's saying, literally, there's some that are beyond reclamation. That's where it ends. And this is my summation for you. To add anything beyond faith in Christ alone through God's free gift is to insult God beyond measure and to distort the gospel of Jesus Christ. We absolutely cannot add anything. Jesus did it all. All to him I owe. That's why the song was written the way it was written. The free gift of salvation involves repentance of sin and acceptance of God's grace alone. Here's the problem. Man likes to be rewarded, and so we try to add things to it so we can stand back and say, look how righteous I am. But God says, no, your unrighteousness is wiped away in the work of Jesus Christ. So if you grab the notes when you came in this morning, you're going to find over on the right-hand page, there's five points I want to send you out with this morning. Things that you can always remember, put in the back of your Bible to watch so you can help identify false teachers. These five I'm going to read off to you. First of all, be very careful who is speaking into your life. Number two, True authority always begins with God's Word. So if someone is speaking into your life, like the man I described on the stool giving marriage advice, he better be basing that on the Word of God. If you've got someone who's speaking into your life and they cannot speak with the authority of God's Word, walk away from it. You don't have to support that or encourage that. Number three, beware of individuals who will not put themselves under authority. Number four, failure, and this is for us. Failure on our part to confront false teaching is indicative of an indifference regarding God's truth. God said, muzzle it, stop it, don't let false teaching exist. If we're indifferent towards, we're disregarding God's word. Number five, firm, grace-filled confrontation can result in stronger relationships and restored unity. That's the ultimate goal of exhorting someone. So if you are in a position in which you're going to come alongside someone who you believe is sharing untruth about the Word of God, Scripture commands that you do it in a gentle way, a healthy way, speaking the truth in love. To not declare God's Word, what He says about Jesus Christ and being our only way to God, to not speak that is not loving because it's leading people astray. When we speak it, God says, speak it in truth and in love. Ephesians 4.15, speak the truth in love. I invite you to pray with me. Father, what we've looked at and what we've declared this morning is hard truth. And we would never want to be a church that would shy away from it. So we declare and we put this stake in the ground that we will declare your word. And Father, if we're ever guilty of deviating away from it, I ask that you would correct us, use individuals to show us. I pray for the teachers, even the classes going on downstairs right now, that they would be faithful to exhort and reprove and to use your word as their source of teaching. For everything, Father, that we lay forth here at New Church, at New Hope Church moving forward, we ask that you would Make sure that we use it in such a way, that we use your word in such a way that it calls people to a relationship with you. Father, I know you intimately care for this congregation. 
for men and women and students and children who are sitting here right now, I know you intimately care for them. You sent your son to die for us. And your desire is that we would be conformed to your will and to your purpose. So Father, this week I ask as individuals leave this room that you would first cause them to really recalculate, to understand fully what they believe. And then based on that belief to take action. God, I ask you would cause our church, those who name the name of Christ, to be bold for you and to stand firmly, regardless of what the world around them thinks. We believe that what you said is accurate, that your gospel is an offense to the world. But Father, it's a sweet savor to us because you have redeemed us and called us unto yourself. Use this truth, Father, to expand your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week.